Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. It's February 2021. By now, many of us were expecting to be talking about the NCAA's new rules and regulations about names, images, and likenesses. Promised as late as December 2020, the night before the 2021 NCAA convention began, President Mark Emmert suddenly tabled the proposals for all three divisions, leaving the organization and student athletes in quite a mess. Observers of the collegiate sports enterprise have many opinions about how the NCAA runs its shop. And many have long advocated for more college athletes, more for college athletes, better health coverage, more healthcare coverage post-career, more educational opportunities, less student debt after graduation, et cetera, et cetera. Some have argued for paying the athlete to salary and benefits as their coaches and athletic administrators now receive. The NCAA has long pushed back hard on athletes being paid anything as in their view, it would turn them into employees of their institutions. In addition to creating a host of tax implications, the organization also lives in fear of athletes organizing and demanding the opportunity to collectively bargain for even more rights. What has emerged is the opportunity to monetize your NIL now, something every other student on campus can currently do as it's a basic right. Allowing athletes to earn money by signing autographs, running camps, becoming a social media marketer or influencer seem to be a good place to test the waters. Initial indications seem to be that the outsourcing the oversight mechanisms to companies hungry to help athletes capitalize on their financial futures the NCAA was expecting to build some guardrails to incubate the enterprise. This still, we should note, does not match the freedoms that other students have. To help us make sense of the landscape that the NCAA and indeed all of higher education is facing when it comes to college athletics today, my guest is Macon Delrahim. Until January 2020, Delrahim was the Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division for the U.S. Department of Justice. He also has held a number of committee positions that I want you to, him to tell you about. Currently, he is an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School, teaching mergers and acquisitions. Macon was the main liaison between the NCAA and the US Department of Justice and has shared his concerns over the past several years with the NCAA regarding the antitrust issues facing college sports. These concerns so alarmed President Emmert earlier this year he put a halt onto the voting of the NIL legislation indefinitely. Macon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. I'm looking forward to it. I am really looking forward to this conversation as well. I am not a lawyer. I have a limited understanding of antitrust law, mostly as it applies to media and technology. See, you will be helping enlightening both myself and my listeners about how this antitrust law applies to this very unique marketplace, college athletics. So let's dive right in. In early, early January of 2020, Steve Berkowitz of USA Today reported he had reviewed a letter you sent to President Emmert expressing your concerns. In it, you wrote, the antitrust laws demand that college athletes like everyone else in our free market economy benefit appropriately from competition. Walk us through your concerns about which parts of college athletics governance may violate antitrust regulations. Uh, well, 
you know, uh, Berkowitz, uh, Mr. Berkowitz, I think has done a, a great job of really reporting the news uh, and trying to inform the readers of his columns at USA Today about exactly what is happening. And he's, I think, covered well and fairly uh, the debate with respect to college athletics uh, at the moment. So, I mean, your, your first question might be, why does antitrust care about something like college sports or, or sports in general? Uh, I think just stepping back, antitrust is really a discipline uh, that looks to preserving the competitive process. It doesn't really care who wins, who loses, um, like sports. It is you set a set number of rules uh, about fair competition. And if somebody you know, transgresses that, that's when they trip over the antitrust laws. It's not because they have uh, gained a lot of market share. I used to be, um, I had in a sophomoric way had characterized, you know, big is not bad in antitrust law. It's big behaving badly uh, can be bad. And so that means that if you have done, uh, if you have innovated or are more efficient and gain market share in a company, same thing with sports. If you are dominant because of better skills, uh, better coaches, better athletes, um, antitrust doesn't get involved. Where antitrust gets involved is when, uh, when a collective group, so the NCAA is a collective group of, you know, of different organizations, conferences and colleges uh, in order to set the rules. And you want there to be competition between as much as possible uh, between uh, the schools for the athletes, for example, for the student athletes. A lot of these student athletes uh, may be stars in high school, all of them are, uh, as they get into college. And different schools will compete for their talents. Um, they have different reasons for that, perhaps. Uh, but most of them are, especially when you're talking about uh, Division One football and basketball, um, you know, there's a there's a, a real profit motive. There's some multi-billion-dollar contracts for television that goes in, and so the issue is: Are they making rules that uh, adversely affects uh, these you know athletes uh, who happen to be students going into the schools? There used to be rules, for example where the NCAA, the collective body, even if a college wanted to, could not offer a multi-year scholarship. You had to do it, it's one year at a time. So if, um, you know, if that star basketball player from let's say the inner cities in uh, Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles, makes it to a top uh, basketball program, which could be his dream and his or her dream could be you know, playing for professional leagues later. But in year one or year two blows out its, you know, it's uh, uh, their knee, uh, they're done. And they no longer can afford to, you know, that college uh, for the rest of the, you know, whatever is remaining in that undergraduate program. So why not let colleges compete? Uh, and that was, uh, you know, that, that's the general overall concern that we have. Uh, we, I mean, my, any, anybody who is in the business of antitrust, of course, in addition to the government, you have private enforcement. Uh, and a lot of the cases, the groundbreaking cases have been brought by private enforcers and including the current one that's pending in Alston up, up to the Supreme Court. 
In fact, you uh, wrote the opinion uh, from the Department of Justice Antitrust Division to the Solicitor General. Can you tell us a little bit about how you set that up? I, well, I can't really comment on any particular case or my involvement or the divisions, but I can speak generally. So when the Supreme Court gets a case, um, uh, grants it or is considering uh, a petition for them to review a case and they want to know what is the Solicitor General's views. What they would do is they would, um, you know, ask whether or not this is this case is cert worthy and they will ask the Solicitor General. And so depending on the, you know, if it's a criminal matter, of course, the SG's office, Solicitor General's office will then ask, you know, the criminal division and various people in the Justice Department will have an input. If it's an antitrust matter, naturally the Solicitor General's office uh, asks the antitrust division for its views on, uh, on whether or not one, the case should be taken. If they have already taken the, uh, the case, so the Supreme Court says, we're gonna review this just like they do, uh, they have in the Alston case. Then they will ask, uh, invite the Solicitor General, you know, and the Solicitor General is the government's, is the justice, is housed in the Justice Department, but is the government's lawyer in the Supreme Court. Um, so all of that, once it reaches to the Supreme Court, funnels through them. So in this case, they invited the views of the Justice Department, the Solicitor General, um, and one of that process is that, and you know, uh, in that, that you know, uh, the antitrust division would present its views of what the solicitor general should tell the Supreme Court, based on precedent, based on antitrust policy, um, of of whether or not some of the arguments are sound or not sound in the in the prior case law. And then from there, they develop their, their theory of the case and, and present from there. So it's not just your opinion, it's part of the Solicitor General's general case. Uh, well, Solicitor General exactly will, will echo what the views of the Justice Department are. In an antitrust case, typically it's the Justice Department with input from other agencies. So almost in every case, anybody within the government who might have an, you know a, uh, 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 a stake in the outcome of the matter. So if it's an intellectual property matter, a copyright, for example, the Copyright Office, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office of the Commerce Department, um, FCC and the DOJ and antitrust division all may have an input. Uh, in an antitrust case that's pure bread and butter antitrust, uh, the DOJ would, I presume, the Federal Trade Commission also enforces the general antitrust law. Because once the Supreme Court sets a antitrust principle, regardless of the subject matter, it applies to all industries. So the law develops. So the FTC could come in. Um, the Department of Labor, I think, you know, might have a say. Department of Commerce uh, might want to have a say as well. Uh, but predominantly within the building, the Justice Department's antitrust division uh, would be the main input to the SG's office. One other um, valuable entity that you provided uh, a great amount of input as chief counsel to the U.S. Senate's Judiciary Committee. Um, I have watched a number of hearings over the years involving um, NCAA representatives and others coming before Congress, either in the House or the Senate. Tell us a little about your work on that. Sure. Uh, so I left private practice to go be the antitrust and intellectual property counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the Senate Judiciary Committee 
um, you know, sometimes gets in the media because that's who has the, that's the committee that uh, oversees the, um, the processing and review of Supreme Court right. nominees. So most recent Supreme Court vacancies have gone through that. Um, there's, you know, many famous or infamous incidents over the period of history that have occurred. Uh, they also have this Judiciary Committee has exclusive uh, uh, rights for any legislation and oversight of both intellectual property and antitrust laws. So the antitrust laws uh, uh, fall into that. When I joined back in 1998, uh, you know, the internet was just getting started back then, uh, the committee had begun a review of uh, the baseball's antitrust immunity. So baseball has this immunity that was granted by an old, you know, uh, Supreme Court case uh, in the early 1900s. Basically, said it's not a business in interstate commerce. It's just, you know, um, you know, uh, it's it's a sport. It's not a business. It's baseball. <laughs> it's not. So there was an ode, I think, you know, Justice Holmes had written. Um, but it's uh, so because of that, because antitrust has to deal with things that are interstate commerce. It's a business. So um, baseball, you know, other sports have been found to be um, in interstate commerce. And of course, I don't think anybody would doubt that today's baseball is not commerce uh, or uh, collegiate athletics for that matter. And so the committee was looking to see, you know, with, especially with respect to minor league baseball and major league baseball, does it make sense to chip away at the antitrust immunity that was granted by the Supreme Court? And so it had a number of hearings. So I got, you know, toward, towards the tail end of that. And then I was later the, uh, became the chief counsel of the full committee. Um, and, you know, again, we had oversight of the antitrust division, uh, the various antitrust laws. Uh, how they um, changed. We had a number of hearings in, um, in National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, uh, I mentioned earlier, but National Football League also has a statutory antitrust immunity to, mm -hmm. to pool their collective broadcast rights. Right. And so there's a lot of activity and intersection between the committee and sports. Um, Senator Feinstein for a number of years had some uh, legislation to deal with antitrust immunity and movement of baseball teams from, you know, from one team to another, whether or not, um, you know, sports teams can move. From uh, Brooklyn to Los Angeles, for example. Well, her fear back then was the Chargers were threatening to move from San Diego and go to some other state that was wooing them with, you know, big stadium uh, deals and what ended up happening, I think San Diego ended up moving to Los Angeles, as did the Rams move back to Los Angeles. And if, but the Raiders moved to Vegas, uh, uh, the the Oakland Raiders, and so all of these have been th their movements have been brought about by antitrust cases that were brought in the courts. Interesting. So, as much as you can, tell us a little bit about your concerns, your general concerns that you've shared with Mark Emmert about the antitrust issues that are currently facing the NCAA landscape? Well, as a, as a general public policy matter, there's a couple of things. One is uh, there, there was some talk by the NCAA leadership 
that they would boycott states that pass legislation that would uh, require compensation for name, image, and likeness uh, for student uh, for these uh, athletes. Um, they, uh, California was in the process of passing legislation, which it ultimately did. I, I believe it was almost, if, if it wasn't unanimous, it was near unanimous. Yeah. And it was signed by Governor Newsom. Uh, and this was about maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. And they were, I, I believe they were the first ones. And then now you've had several other states uh, either pass them or in the process of passing similar laws. Uh, kind of creates competition between the states. But their threat was if California passes it, then there won't be any NCAA games played in that state. Um, and post, first- Postseason, postseason games. Postseason games. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and that, that comes with not only pride, you know, imagine my alma mater, UCLA, um, not being able to play in a, well, uh, if, if they were so, if they would be so lucky to make it into like the Sweet 16 or the Final Fours, but just because California passed a law that requires UCLA to pay it, to allow its athletes to earn some kind of an income uh, based on the name, image, and likeness. So the challenge there was, the group, you know, as a group boycott. So one of the, you know, violations of antitrust laws is that if a group comes together and says, we will not compete with somebody. And um, so I, I thought that that would be a real uh, issue. California passed the law. It I believe it comes into effect next year, sometime in 2022, I believe. Or is it 2023? One of those, one of those. Two or three. Yeah. And there's, I think, discussion and possible amendment that would speed it up if another state uh, enacts it sooner. And I believe Florida might be going into effect. Some, yeah, so I think that's one of the things that they're looking at. So um, then the issue became, you know, when, when the state law passes and says you must allow these folks to uh, earn a living, if a, if a college wants to individually decide against doing such a thing, you know, assuming the state law doesn't require them to. That could be fine from an antitrust standpoint, but the colleges cannot get together or the leagues or the you know, conferences cannot get together and say, you know what? We are going to deny any student the ability to play uh, collegiate sports um, uh, if they make, uh, you know, if they make money or violate this rule that prohibits them from earning any uh, outside income for name, image, and likeness. Um, now they could, you know, it's going to be interesting, you know, could they put some limits and do certain things? Uh, we'll have to wait and see what the courts uh, rule on that. But the concern, the, the primary concern is a collective body. There was a case that I brought and we ended up settling that with a consent decree just last year. It was another part of the colleges. And this was the National Association of College Admission Counselors. NACAC, yes. Mm -hmm. And NACAC had put a rule in that applied to all the schools for early admissions and a point of which scholarship could no longer be granted. So let's just say, a very high achieving you know, student from a high school, maybe they come from an economically disadvantaged background or perhaps you know, uh, 
a diverse candidate who the school would find desirable to add to their student body to diversify their body. Um, you know, is a gets in, gets in in whatever early admission is March, April. Um, and, you know, they get a $10,000 scholarship uh, towards, and this, this has nothing to do necessarily with sports. This is just general right. admission. Right. So they, they get $10,000 scholarship, but let's just say, you know, Duke wants to give them a $30,000 scholarship or Harvard wants to give them, you know, come May or June, uh, a full ride or whatever that might be, uh, or Stanford or whomever the school is, this collective body had agreed amongst itself to not allow for that competition. And who would lose? The students. students and right. so we brought a case, they changed their rule. We entered into a consent decree settlement that precludes them from doing that. And I view it, you know, the, the, the sports limitations, very much the same. Mm. You know, the transfer rules are pretty pernicious. Uh, those were part of the rules they were considering changing last month, that, uh, which was the subject of the letter. and. Uh, and Steve's uh, article in the USA Today. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive. So the transfer rules that you're that you're concerned about are the ones that primarily apply to the the revenue producing sports, football, men's and women's basketball, and they have a restriction on them that they must, I think, sit for a year. They can't go automatically, and you feel as if that's a restraint of their ability to freely explore the marketplaces. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, you know. There were rules that you couldn't transfer or play in another sport. They modified some of those rules uh, and they put some limitations on the ability to transfer. So just as a matter of, you know, being able to transfer for whatever reason, maybe there's a, you know, you're a third string quarterback in school X, but school Y is offering you a starting position and you want to go there or school Y is, a, you know, may, may have become a better school or you know, you just want to move because, you know, I don't know, God forbid your mom is sick exactly. and you want to move to the, you know, school that's close to home, whatever the reason might be. Uh, you shouldn't lose your, you know, you could lose your scholarship to that first school, but you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't be precluded from competing to go to that second school if you want to. So they placed a number of, I mean, those rules still apply. There's a number of restrictions. For example, you have to go notify your current team. You can't speak to the prospective new school uh, without speaking to your current one, which means you know, alienating your coach and students and colleagues and teammates and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about exploring going to you know, school, whatever. Um, and so there, there was some restrictions that you, you know, you and I, you know, could switch and go teach at another school or go to another, you know, consulting firm or law firm or whatever that might be. Um, now, there are some limits of non-competes that could apply, assuming they're reasonable within that state that says you can't. And that's for, you know, to preserve the ability of the first employer to invest in you in the first place. But to do this with students in the name of protecting students and the integrity, I thought was just a bridge too far. And I encourage them to change those rules and we'll see what happens. 
yeah, you're right. They are on the books at this point, but it's, I find it interesting that it's more of more concern to the NCAA that it, they protect the revenue producing athletes versus all the other ones, particularly in this year of the pandemic, when so many uh, teams in the fall of 2020 were told we're not having a season because it's just not safe. So, so uh, I saw a number of athletes just jump immediately into the transfer portal and try to get eligible somewhere else immediately. And for non-revenue athletes, evidently it wasn't a problem. So the issue must be that it's because they're making money for the institutions. Would you say that's a logical assumption? I think that's a very fair assumption. <laughs> um, you know, it's the old saying, follow the money. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a um, there's also something, you know, I'm not, one to question, you know, anybody's necessarily motives, nor the issues as it affects um, race. But in this area, uh, I think the, the predominant number of the revenue-producing sports um, is just the the, the effect uh, is disproportionate, you know, you just, it just happens to be just for socioeconomic or whatever reasons, you know, basketball and football, particularly men, you know, men's basketball and football, um, who is harmed by some of these rules are the inner city kids. They come from economically disadvantaged. And for a lot of them, you know, their sports, their athleticism, uh, may be the ticket out of uh, some difficult home situations or you know economic backgrounds uh, to get college degrees or or maybe you know get to go to the uh, uh, you know the professional sports and um, it's a shame that it's you know they're affected rather than the water polo player or the golf you know and tennis uh, country club kids yeah it's it is very interesting in in the world of sports commentary much has been made of the term fair market value for college athletes. It appeared that the NCAA was moving towards making a determination on behalf of athletes as to what they think the value was and not allowing the free market to operate in the NIL world. You have concerns this could be price fixing. Walk us through your concerns. Uh, so when a group of, you know, in, in the, the antitrust world, a group of buyers uh, let's say you're a group of food processors. You know, these are the folks who go to the farms and buy the cows, and then they'll process the meat and sell them as, you know, steak or whatever meat product. If, you know, a number of them, if, if, first of all, it's a concentrated market, but if they all got together and passed a rule that said, we're not going to focus on competition on what we buy, but, you know, here's what it is. Take, take it or leave it. And they basically foreclose the market for that input, which means the farmer. Well, what's going to happen? It, you know, in economic terms, it's called a monopsonistic effect, which is kind of the reverse of a monopoly. A monopoly is if one person, you know, controlled such a big market share that it had the power to raise prices uh, without a loss in the demand for the product, because it just they were the either the only player or the most desired. Uh, the reverse is if you can't sell, you know, a product into a group that, you know, you have a collection of uh, buying power 
And so if you have a group of, um, you know, recipients of the talents of, let's say, student athletes, now let's, you know, and, and to easiest way to think about it is that these students are selling a service, which is their athleticism. And with that, you know, the ability to bring a championship and media attention and sell advertising, blah, 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 for the school. Uh, it, if, if they are foreclosed of what they can get, that really becomes a, a, a problem, I think, in the eyes of the antitrust laws, um, that you cannot collectively do that. Now, if the school, school says, look, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm a state school and our state budget is low. And this year, this is all we're gonna do. So be it. That's, you know, they individually make that decision but they can't get together and collectively do that. Um, and and that is, that's a classic uh, concern for antitrust law. I think that's one of the things that I've been struggling with because for years, one of the things that Mark Emmert and other NCAA presidents have talked about is maintaining a level playing field right? The ability for everybody to equally compete for a national championship or even getting into the postseason. And yet <clears throat> we've thought about that academically. That's why various, uh, the clearinghouse was created and other kinds of, you know, academic structures. But only I think recently in the last five to 10 years have people thought about it economically for the, for the athletes. And Hence, you have the Alston case and others that are trying to broaden the uh, kinds of um, uh, financial educational opportunities that are given to the athletes. If the Big Ten were to say as a conference, we want to offer this, but the Big 12 said we can't afford this as a conference, does that upset the, the balance of competitiveness and how is that treated under antitrust law? So it could, and, and it gets become trickier because the conferences are also collections of bodies, you know, so that's not an individual body. So you have a kind of a, a collection of confederacies uh, within the broader NCAA. And, and my understanding is that there's a lot of give and take as far as, you know, was it the NCAA wants to change the rules, but the conferences don't, maybe the conferences, and there's push and pull between the, uh, between them. So look, I think there is, uh, there is an issue with respect to, we want to keep it all you know, fair so that there's not an unfair advantage in one school versus the other so that there's going to be some level. But you always generally have that. You know, you, you might have, you can't, you can't, you can, you can do the best you can to try to keep it as level of a playing field but you can't really uh, apply that all the way and, and only target in the compensation for the students. I mean, there's other ways, for example, to allow compensation for students. I think you could allow schools to provide, again, these are collective rules, but you yeah. can allow schools to provide for you know, an eight-year scholarship. So if the student doesn't go on to the NBA or the NFL, and they decide to, you know, if they want to, it's up to them, uh, go to law school or business school or medical school or education school or whatever it might be, um, then, th then they don't have to worry about that tuition. And if they have the leverage because they're that good early on when they're leaving high school to come into college, maybe that college provides that. Now, one could argue 
that a school that doesn't have a professional program, it's just a four-year college, um, may not be able to compete at that level. Uh, or they don't happen to have, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a good school that, for example, you know, might be great in basketball, but doesn't have, you know, a medical school or something. But look, they're competing now. They're able to get that on their reputation. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we have to be careful about the types of justifications for any rules that restrict competition. And are these, you know, are these legitimate concerns? Is there a more, uh, more pro-competitive, a less restrictive mechanism by which to achieve that same goal. It's almost like our, you know, in, under our constitution, our free speech principles uh, under the first amendment, you strike down government infringement on free speech if it's not, you know, narrowly tailored and the most, uh, the least restrictive mechanism by which to do that. And I think, you know, the NCAA and the conferences would be wise to think about each of the limits that they would be putting. I think some of these transfer rules, for example, uh, they, they just don't, they don't survive that test. Uh, I think the name, image, and likeness, uh, they don't, you know, by just banning it outright, especially banning it outright for certain sports, but not banning it for some other sports. Uh, you know, so it's a difficult task and you can't say, you know, there's no limits by the NCAA on the pay for athletic directors or head coaches. Right. Compete well. I mean, I just saw a big deal in Iowa and, you know, and with the coach and, and others and they, they you know, multi-year deals. I mean, you know, some of the coaches uh, could make uh, you know, up to $10 million a year as they should if their skills and because that's what competition is about. Right. You want right. them to do well and be able to benefit from that. But NCAA isn't saying, look, we just want some fairness in the level of coaching and the ability to recruit. Therefore, you can't pay coaches more than a million dollars a year. Or <laughs> a million. It just doesn't, you know, doesn't pass the test. I think a, a lot of um, uh, scholars would argue that you can get an antitrust exemption or a partial antitrust exemption to moderate the spending. What do you think about that? Well, you could do that. So it's up to Congress, of course. Congress writes the antitrust rules. Um, and the laws. Uh, there's also another way to do this. And in the professional sports, uh, you know, you can get an antitrust exemption if there's, uh, you know, as, as part of a collective bargaining uh, agreement. So you can have, now I don't know if that will limit spending or increase spending or whatever it would be, but you could have a collective body that negotiates for the rights and if that's something that is negotiated, right now you have a collective body that you know, sets rules that affects the individual students and athletes. And those guys are not at the table. They're not represented by a collective body. And they're, they're not uh, represented because they're not, you know, there's not a union for them. There was an effort, I believe, five, six years ago uh, through the United Steel Workers. But, I think Congress would be wise to consider, uh, does it make sense to have, you know, maybe not a full union, but a collective negotiating body for, you know, health, for uh, compensation, and for name, image, and likeness, and the well-being of students. Um, 
vis-a-vis NCAA. And as part of that, you can have an antitrust immunity to set up some rules, but you would have to have some, you know, some, some parity and equity between the two sides. Um, I would also think that the um, <clears throat> FTC or some other organization might want to provide some oversight with that as well, or could it just operate and we trust that everything will go well? So they could do that. I mean, again, Congress can write whatever it wants. Um, you know, the law enforcement bodies like DOJ and FTC are better left to be, I think, law enforcers rather than regulators. So instead of, you know, creating a broader education, you know, they could have the Department of Education or the Department of Labor for that matter, <laughs> uh, oversee that. Uh, but I think Department of Education, you know, would be, you can have an office within there, there might already be one that oversees the well-being of the students and Congress could grant them, you know, some limited oversight of that. But I think if you let competition win, um, and you let the students you know, be represented collectively. So they have now some general representation that oversees, but it's, you know, it's uh, the National Collegiate Players Association, but it's really more of you know, advocacy for some of the rights. They're not at the table with the NCAA negotiating collectively on behalf of that. And I think that's the type of arrangement you need, like the NFL Players Association or Major League Baseball Players Association. Yeah, we use those players associations as models. Uh, I've been paying a close attention to what the WNBA recently no negotiated in their collective bargaining agreement. And it's very, it's a very uh, forward thinking document. And I can easily see that uh, college women's basketball players would want some of the same opportunities that the WNBA players are having when it comes to health benefits and, you know, the ability to, um, provide some structure on marketing and promotional assignments, those types of things. But here's my question. How, how could we do as a collective bargaining agreement without having a union? Are, can those two things exist outside sure. of each other? Yeah, really? Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Congress can create, you know, uh, can create that. Uh, they could create, you know, basically a body uh, that allows for that. So uh, they've done that in other areas, uh, such as uh, just even more recently within the last two years they, in the music industry hmm. uh, for you know, certain public performance rights in the digital marketplace allow for um, some collective negotiations with broadcasters uh, so that uh, artists uh, can collectively do it. So, so, you know, and publishers and others uh, it's an interesting way, but again, I think with creativity, you can do that. You can take the best parts of what a union would be in a, you know, a, you know, especially in a, in a, at the collegiate level, because you don't need necessarily all of the protections. Uh, and again, this is what congressional hearings and experts and testimony would provide, you know, I would, if I was designing it, I would bring, you know, some of the um, experts in labor law, uh, some of the experts in antitrust law, some of the experts in education, and, you know, have multiple hearings in Congress and say, what makes sense? Mm -hmm. and I believe Senators uh, Blumenthal from Connecticut and Senator um, um, from New Jersey, uh, Corey yeah. Uh, and I don't know if there are others on that bill, but they, they have uh, 
legislation, of course, Senator Blumenthal was um, the, the attorney general of the state and, and uh, you know, really knows his antitrust uh, world. And uh, Senator Booker, I believe, played I believe he played college at Stanford, if I'm not That's mistaken. right, football at Stanford, that's right, yes. Yes, and so did, uh, well, Chris Murphy won't claim to being a great athlete, but he's passionate about uh, college athletics as well. And he has also put forward some uh, ideas, as did Donna Shalala before she left uh, the house and, and others. We've had ideas, it's just a matter of, is there the collective will to do this? Uh, and it feels like names, images, and likenesses is sort of the, the cudgel, if you will, of, of saying, okay, well, if you really want to do this within the law, then here are some other things that you need to take care of as well. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. And I think, I think the real um, uh, tipping point was California's passage of that law because it created a domino effect in other states. Yeah, sure. Sure. Competition between the states, uh, because, you know, if, if California is required to uh, compensate the players or allow them to earn money for their name, image, and likeness. And so one prospective you know, student um, is, is, has a choice to go to Stanford or UCLA or USC. Uh, well, what is you know, Duke or Florida or Alabama going to do if that student cannot in their state earn that? Of course, then this, you know, those legislatures. And so what is created is now a debate and it's actually has the NCAA seeking antitrust legislation, immunity legislation um, before Congress as part of the debate. So the question is, you know, will the other side have proper representation? Will the NCAA, will the conferences have a different set of views? And, um, and then everybody at the end of the day looks to legislation to see, is it better for them or worse for them? Right. And, and they look at the bottom line and, uh, but it, it, it is one where I think um, probably wouldn't have happened, but for the California uh, NIL bill passing. Um, and we will have to wait and see what they actually do uh, in Congress. And as you mentioned, we've got the TikTok on Florida coming forward because they're about to launch it. I think it's uh, August 1st or September 1st of 2021. Yeah. That's going to be, and that will then create yet another set of reverse domino effects because that could trigger moving up and speeding up legislation like in California's. Is there any way for the NCAA to put a temporary stay on the Florida um, legislation? Uh, well, they could, they would have to go to court and okay. sue to seek an injunction from the law going into effect. Um, you know, it could be under, I don't know, it's unconstitutional or whatever, but I don't know what the theories are. And they may have already filed a suit. I'm not sure. Yeah, I haven't heard of being sure And of course, you know, you, you, you started off with the Supreme Court's case. And yes. Yes. so that's coming up. I believe the argument is sometime in March. I, I think don't it's know March 31st. Yeah. March 31st. So, um, you know, right after March Madness, uh, so they, that'll be uh, right at the tip of, I think, the Supreme Court justices' minds. Um, and it'll be interesting for them to see what, you know, what happens because they could set a whole set of new rules, just like you know, yes. Major League Baseball was exempted from the antitrust laws. That changes, then the leverage dynamics change. If the law is now such where um, the NCAA, Supreme Court holds for the NCAA's argument, 
or a very favorable view of their uh, rules and, and less scrutiny, well, then their likelihood to seek immunity from Congress and the ability to negotiate with the players will probably go down. And, luckily, and likely the, the ruling from the Supreme Court would come in June, is that right? Probably, but yeah, typically what they would do is do it no later than end of June because the term ends like in that first week in July. So usually by the 4th of July, it'll be over. So, um, you know, uh, barring some unforeseen, you know, other procedural dismissals or something, uh, I think we'll by, by the summer, we could very well have much more clear rules uh, about what the role of antitrust is with respect to the uh, collegiate athletes. Well, this, Megan, this has been a fascinating, absolutely fascinating conversation. And I so appreciate, you know, I, I told you earlier, you have the heart of a teacher. And I really feel like you've helped us understand the nuances of some of this and, and also how clear it seems when you just kind of apply the basic antitrust philosophies to the decisions that have been made historically within college athletics. I want to thank you for joining us today. Of course. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for having me. And thank you for what you do. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>